the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Get on the bus, Gus. I don't know if there are kids out there named Gus anymore. I guess there must be. But apparently getting on the bus safely is a problem. Uh, If you were listening yesterday, you heard uh, we had uh, Lenore Skenazy on the show. She's the founder of Free Range Kids, and she's been talking about parents overprotecting their kids and the harm that that causes them for years. And a study uh, was recently done by a pediatric journal that shows that mental problems among adults today can be traced back to kids who were overprotected. So I was thinking about that today as I was coming back from taking my dogs for their morning walk. I happened to get behind a school bus. At every bus stop, there were almost as many adults as there were kids, which means just about every kid, obviously, had a parent waiting for the bus with them. Now, this was not a busy road. It was a residential street. So I'm thinking, what could possibly be the reason for parents feeling that they have to be there with their kids as they wait for a bus? And these weren't just very little kids. They weren't little kids. They were all ages and sizes. Here's the other thing. This is what I noticed today. The bus stopped at about every five houses on the street. It would stop, pick up five or six kids in front of the house. Their parents would walk back into their homes or down the street or whatever. Then the bus would drive down the street, maybe not any farther than a kid could throw a ball. And then it would stop again and let six or seven more kids on all of whom were waiting with their parents, of course. Now, whatever happened to the concept of a bus stop? Remember those? When did kids start getting picked up in front of their homes? And is it also considered unsafe now to walk a couple of hundred yards down your residential street to a bus stop? I don't know. I distinctly remember waiting for a bus on Cedar Boulevard in Mount Lebanon. If you live in the South Hills, live in that area, you know what that street is like. It's not a residential street. I did that when I was in the first grade. I was six, and there were no parents to be seen anywhere. It wasn't like my parents were neglectful and didn't show up to hang with me. Nobody's parents were there. So how did we survive? So anyway, the next time you happen to get behind a school bus in a residential area, just notice how many kids are being guarded by their parents as they wait Then think back to the study that Lenore Skenazy and I talked about yesterday, and then try to figure out how not letting your kid wait for a bus by him or herself when he or she is 10 years old is good for him or her. I can't figure it out. Anyway, when we come back, a former producer at Fox News will tell you how you can judge the amount of bias in the reporting on the war in Gaza with just one word. And in our second half hour, some recent court rulings could mean that the tide might be turning a little bit in the war against transgender insanity. Stick around. Well, you would think that when a country is attacked by terrorists who rape women, kill and kidnap women, babies and old people, that, uh, you know, there wouldn't be a lot of nuance required in the coverage or that it would be hard to determine who the good guys are. 
So what's happening with the coverage of the war in Gaza? Ken LaCourt was a producer at Fox News for a long time, knows all about fair and balanced reporting, and he joins us now. Ken, thanks for coming back on. Hey, good afternoon. So um, you wrote about this today at at Substack. Um, Let's start with the words. You say that you can do it with one word. Let's start with, uh, uh, well, pick your favorite word. We'll start with that one. One of the things to do, and, and, and look, the Palestinians have had a lot of sympathy uh, uh, by the media and by some parts of society and, and many parts of the world for a long time. That's that's changed, certainly in U.S. media, you know, very, very quickly, specifically looking at Hamas. But you look at some of the words and, and you, you can you can you can identify where a news outlet's coming from. You know, one of them is clearly terrorist versus militant. The BBC and others refuse to use the word terrorist. Um, you know, clearly in this instance of, of Hamas fighters coming in, targeting women, children, noncombatants, you know, the word terrorist is, is, is absolutely perfectly applicable. Where that will get kind of, kind, of, uh, kind of weird is as the war continues, do we call every person who is in Gaza fighting against, uh, fighting against Israelis who are coming into their neighborhoods, are, are they terrorists or not? There's also a little bit of, of of, that Israel, I think, needs to be careful with, with calling Hamas a terrorist organization. It, Hamas is much more than that. You know, they're also the ruling force, the governing body of, of Gaza. I mean, it's, it's kind of like, you know, we didn't like Nazis in World War II, but we went to war more than against Nazis. We went to war against Germany, which was supporting it with their people, with their votes, with their with their their work and activities. And and that's still playing out a little bit in Gaza, too. Right. I mean, the, the population supports them and allows them to do this, this stuff. Mm-hmm. Well, but some of the words are just just fall apart when you look at them. If you hear somebody talking about colonialism, mm-hmm. you just look at that for four seconds and say, well, wait a second. I mean, a, a colonial action is when a country sends people to another part of the world, sometimes a country, sometimes just a region, and sets up ways to bring resources and, and wealth back to the mainland. Well, Israel's not doing that at all. I mean, first of all, they've got no homeland to go to besides Israel. The concept that they're colonializing Palestine, which also doesn't have any resources, and is, you know, they're not, they're not uh, Israel isn't profiting from somehow having, uh, you know, these militant societies next to them. It's just a completely silly word that, that sounds good in college. Um, another one that you'll definitely hear come up more is proportionality. Um, that's, that's a misunderstood concept in warfare. And they do talk about proportionality if you have to bomb a certain area or destroy a certain area and you know there are civilians there that you want to have a, a good military reason to, to, to you know, overcome those civilian deaths that you know are going to get hap- happen. It's not what you're going to hear and you're already starting to hear Wait a second, 1,400 people died in, in Israel, and now there's going to be X thousand, and it's going to be over 10,000 deaths, quite likely. And you will hear people start to say, once those numbers get out of whack, that somehow that, that, that means the war should stop. But that's just kind of silly on, on, on all grounds. I mean, you know, we, we lost several thousand men in, in Pearl Harbor. We never said, let's stop bombing Germany and stop attacking Germany because we've overcome that number. It's just, um, it, it, that's going to be another kind of sneaky way for, for them to, uh, for, for opponents of Israel to try to turn this into, turn them into the bad guys. So um, 
those words are all very good words, and you do a great job of pointing out how you can judge media outlets by their use of them. But are there American media outlets still calling uh, the Hamas militants or fighters? You know, you'll see some of that on MSNBC, and you've seen a lot of, um, how do I say, MSNBC certainly has had a, a different kind of attitude towards it, toward, towards towards this whole thing. You know, they make sure that they bring up a lot of, you know, all of a sudden they're history experts now Now, when, when guys are, are slitting kids' kids' throats. But no, you, you see some of that. Look, you also see, and, and I'll, let me argue the opposite side, I've, I've seen Fox be very, very cheerleading about Israel. Um, you know, they even had, uh, you know, here's how to contribute to Israeli causes. Mm-hmm. Okay, that's a little, you know, even though, you know, there, it, there's a clear moral from what happened, it was clearly a moral, it was awful. It is part of a longer conflict between these, these two things, and Israel will be accused of bad things, rightly or wrongly, in the upcoming, in the upcoming months, as they are bombing the heck out of people and killing people who had nothing to, you know, killing kids. That happens in war. Mm-hmm. When you get too rah-rah on one side, it's, it, it, it reminds, on one hand, it's good because people love it. And, wow, I'm so upset about this. It's great to, to hear this rah-rah, one-sided stuff. But it also reminds you that it's like if, if, if you're that rah-rah, are you being a fair referee in, in the discussions between these, these, two, these two entities? Are you being, you know, there's going to be instances where Israel does X, Hamas or other people or Palestinians on the group say, no, not X, it's Y. When, when you have, have kind of shed off your, 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 your neutrality, that that hurts your long term. That hurts your long term credibility on things as a reporter. So I, I, you know, I get some of the other sideism that that they should always have. I guess though it was things have changed a little bit because it's one thing thirty forty years ago to hear about some some kind of an attack on uh, some defenseless people, and you read about it in the newspaper, and you maybe heard Walter Cronkite talk about it, but nobody had video of it. And so yes. it's kind of hard not to root against Hamas, um, you know, immediately after Absolutely. seeing these videos. So that, that, that's you know, changing, gonna, isn't it? You know, we're going to see TikToks coming out of, of, you know, dead Palestinian kids and dead Gaza sure. kids, too. Yeah. I mean, that's, you know, that's the thing about you are absolutely right. It's to see that horror up front. You know, it also told you how much, how you know, weirdly that, that I mean, Hamas, I mean, they're not crazy or stupid people they they intentionally released these images they intentionally knew that there was going to be images of kidnapped grandmas and dead kids and people getting shot they thought that that would work on on their uh, on on their side and mm-hmm. and i suspect that that flipped around on them pretty hard because a lot of the rest of the world for the time being are like you know what what israel is going to do whatever they're going to do let them wipe them out this is this is horror well, it's, it's almost like uh, rooting for the hurricane instead of the people in Florida. It, it, you know, it's so drastic. It's, there's just no, there's no reason. Right. Why, how could anybody root for Hamas in a situation right. like that? But as you right. say, it's, it's going to change because uh, that's a couple of weeks behind us now. And there you are, we are going to see now, now Israel is apparently getting ready to march into Gaza and start blowing things up they already have done that 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, and you will see horror on the other side. Now, you know, there is certainly a difference between people who aim for the kids versus the ones who try to avoid killing the kids. I mm-hmm. mean, there is a vastly right. different thing. But sometimes at the end, you know, at the end of the day, you're still looking at a dead, innocent person there completely. And uh, absolutely, that that's going to that's going to be a difficult PR thing for, for Israel to balance as they, as they're seen as, Oh my gosh, well, you know, you've already killed 5,000 of them. When are you going to stop that? that well, there's the, we there's we the parking lot there. mentality that, you know, that's time to turn it into a parking lot. And a lot of people have signed on to that one. Uh, you know, it's time to turn Gaza into a parking lot. And I don't know if any politicians have said that, but I, I've heard that, that those exact two words used and what should be uh, Israel's response. So, uh, yeah, no, I, I get it. That will be harder for people to say once they see what that means. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because I get it, too. I'm like, you know, I, I you get it. You say, oh, my gosh, it's horrible, but, you know, level it all. But, I mean, that, that, that means something different when you see it in action. We're talking to Ken LaCourt, former producer at Fox News. And where can people find your stuff again, Ken? Wow. Some uh, videos on YouTube called Elephants in Rooms, where I talk about uncomfortable topics. Okay, I, I, you, you, uh, we were garbled at the beginning of that. I got the YouTube. What was the other one? Uh, uh, just my name, Ken Lacourt, L-A-C-O-R-T-E, on Substack. Okay. Now, um, as I said, you, you worked at Fox for a long time. Um, and and uh, did you say that the BBC is still, by the way, using the word militant in describing Hamas, the, the, the people yeah. who attacked Israel a couple Saturdays ago? They're militants. Yeah. That's unbelievable. Well, and the yeah. C- CBC is al- also came out, Canadian Broadcasting also came out, which two good arguments against having state media. But anyway, uh, CBC also came out and said, uh, had it with a directive about what words they weren't allowed to use. Mm-hmm. But, um, so, but who decides in a news operation, if, let's take the, the stupid state-run uh, media out of it, but who decides in a in a uh, normal news operation what words reporters are allowed to use? When would that directive come down, and how would the how would the reporters find out? They'd be told after they used it that uh, don't say that anymore, or do you? Is it a preemptive thing? Hey, we got a little problem going over there on in Israel. Here's what you're not allowed to say. You know, most of the t- you know, what you would see is the the large editorial decisions would come from. The, the, the very top, the head of news or the head of programming or, you know, maybe the CEO, if, if that person was in, involved in the news. But usually the CEOs have kind of like pure news people working underneath them um, for something that was like a big here is our policy decision. Sometimes those would be written up or announced in a in, in a meeting um, at Fox. We did that very infrequently. Uh, it was um, telling people exactly what they can or must say. That in a large organization that's covering much news over a lot of times, you usually find yourself screwed up at, at, at times later um, um, when you when you start saying, well, we call these this and here's this. I mean, you certainly have standards and whatnot, but you, if, when you overdo that or do it often, it just all of a sudden people are saying stupid things on the air because they're trying to to obey your right. your command, which didn't see the exception that, that they were that they were reporting on. Um, lesser lesser types of, of of things might be happening by local bureau chiefs. You know, each reporter who's out there, if you know, they'll usually put a script by if if it's not a live hit or even if it is, they'll they'll, they'll usually put their script by their immediate boss who gives it a once over and their producers involved. But you know, sometimes when you're out there just 
here's bombs falling down and I'm talking. Yeah. There's, there's no way to, to there's no way to kind of like do any of that. So you just hope hope that the person doesn't say something stupid. And and that's why you hire smart people and you have discussions about things. But where, where I worked and I really only worked in, at, in one big media organization, but I was there for two decades. Um, we, we, we had conversations with that, but we tried to minimize the edict. Mm-hmm. Now, you uh, also write uh, on your Substack that Fox News ratings, I thought this was interesting, they're up 42% since the Hamas attacks, CNN up 17%, and MSNBC's down 33%. Um, well, first of all, what should we take from that, and what should Fox, CNN, and MSNBC take from it? Well, um, the, the, the first answer is, is look, you, you, it's kind of like, I hate to use a sports analogy, but when your team's doing well, you like to watch the baseball game. When mm-hmm. your team's in the, in the basement, you, you don't. I, I think that that would say that there's a decent number of people who were MSNBC watchers who just either A, didn't care, um, um, or, or, or B, were, were Palestinian supporters, and they're like, oh, my gosh, my side just turned out to be, you know, a bunch of Hitlers out there. I mean, you know, physically yeah. worse than in some ways. Um, you probably also saw some of the uh, MSNBC audience go to CNN. I mean, CNN for all of their editorial issues um, is is still has a worldwide news gathering you know apparatus and reputation is, too. Is, still intact. That is far better. That is yeah. far better. That, I, I mean, if I'm looking at a something happening overseas and I'm, I'm, a, I'm not watching Fox, I would pick CNN certainly over, over, over MSNBC. Mm-hmm. You know what I, what the, the thing that they should all be ignoring that ratings right now. I mean, people are coming in and yeah, that's great. If they're up, it's not, I mean, this is one of those instances where we are talking about things that are so important, so dramatic, so awful that, it, it, you just you just try to get there first. You try to do all that, but you don't. You know, if, if you're starting to say, "Well, we're going to spin this a little bit differently," like you would on a on a talk show, you know, we're going after this audience a little differently. Don't, let's not talk about this or an interview with him. They shouldn't be entering any of that. In an ideal world, they'd be not considering that at all. They'd be trying to present as pure and as fair and as balanced, even though nobody calls it that anymore. And most of it isn't <laughs> news as you can yeah. and, and not, and, and not worry about that other. And, and that's why I'm a little fearful of Fox being so raw, raw that, 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 that starts to color their, their reporting in a way that's, that's, that's not right. Well, uh, I'm out of time, Ken. I'm just real quick. I'll just tell you that I've, I've, I, I mentioned, I sent you a text and you responded. I find uh, Jesse Waters unwatchable right now. I don't know. Uh, we don't have time to talk about that, but I don't know if you're hearing that from anybody else. But I, it's he's over the top. I think. Yes, I know you don't like him flailing his hands all the time, but. Yeah. Um, um... Fortunately, you're on radio, so uh, yeah, you, you, you can't see me right now. Just you're, are you flailing around right now? Is that I'm, what you're saying? I'm, I'm, with one hand, I've got my phone in one hand, the other is talking like an Italian. Well, so, uh, but it won't bother you. Hey, good. I, I, I Ken, I love having you on to give us the inside stuff on what be what might be going on at the network. It's always good to have you. Thanks. Hope to have you again. All right, anytime. Okay, that's Ken Lacourt. You can find him at Ken. L A C O R T E, a Substack, and on YouTube. And we'll be right back. Well, if you're a normal person, you've probably been wondering how long the transgender insanity that's been around for way too long already would finally uh, take to reach its peak. But 
Uh, it may not have peaked yet, but there may be some signs that sane people have had enough. Sarah Parshall Perry is a senior legal fellow for Legal and Judicial Studies at the Heritage Foundation, and she joins us now. Sarah, always good to have you on. Thanks for coming on again. Thanks for having me. So um, is sanity starting to win in court, I guess, is the question. Well, we can't get all of the federal appellate circuits, but I will say that there are judges that are good in some of them. And we've seen a couple of very good rulings here lately out of a federal trial court in the Ninth Circuit and the Sixth Circuit and the Eleventh Circuit. And believe it or not, shock and awe, we've seen a good ruling coming out of a California federal trial court also in the Ninth Circuit. So we're seeing sort of a trickle down because, as you know, John, there are so many manifestations of the gender juggernaut, as I call it. Everything from parental rights. Does a parent have a right to know what their child is being referred to as at school and whether or not they're expressing gender dysphoria? Does a minor child have a right to, quote, gender-affirming care? And do teachers have to be compelled to utilize pronouns with which they do not agree as a, as a fundamental violation of their free speech and religious liberty rights? And we're seeing more and more, especially so within the context of, first of all, bathrooms separated by biological sex, and also whether or not there's a constitutional right to gender-affirming care, that more and more federal courts are saying no to both those questions. Um, but that's, as you were saying that, I was thinking, um, you know, you hear arguments uh, when it comes to the Second Amendment that the founders could not have known about AR-15s. Uh, I don't think the founders... <laughs> when you're talking about, you know, when you're, when you're, when you're having to go... Uh, refer to the U.S. Constitution, I don't think the, the people who uh, wrote it uh, probably, I don't think they envisioned this. They most certainly did not. Yeah. And I will tell you, though, that this goes to really the Supreme Court's past treatment of the notion of individual liberty, right? Mm -hmm. So this right. is the, the notion that actually went to the crux of the issue in both Roe versus Wade and Dobbs versus Jackson Women's Health Organization. And what we see now is this notion of this expansion of fundamental personal liberty against the constitutional rights of someone else, including the constitutional rights of parents and the constitutional rights of, for example, doctors and hospitals who may have religious objections to performing this type of, quote, gender-affirming care. And what we're seeing is within the education context, courts have said you have got to allow parents to know what's going on with their children. But in the context of this gender-affirming care, the same courts have said, but there is not a parental right to get this gender-affirming care. So it's very clear that we're starting to see the boundaries on the parental right under the 14th Amendment. It is very expansive in education, but when it comes to a particular type of medical treatment, it most certainly is not. Um, so this is about state laws that were passed and being followed and now being challenged and overturned in federal court. That's what's going on right now? Yes, absolutely. And what we're seeing is essentially this Dobbs 
versus Jackson Women's Health Framework play out. Remember when a leader wrote the majority opinion, he said, let's return this issue, a contentious social issue to the people and their elected representatives. Well, the issue of gender affirming care and education are nothing if not local issues. That's the way our constitutional system of government is designed to work. And so these legislatures have passed laws that either allow individuals to get this type of medical care or restrict them under the age of 18. And a state has every interest in protecting vulnerable minors, but that has not prevented a number of sort of activist parents together with the ACLU from arguing they have a constitutional right. So we're seeing constitutional claims that start in States trickle up through the federal appellate system. And ultimately, John, I think we're destined for the Supreme Court. Yeah, that's what I was going to ask you. Uh, these decisions that you're talking about now, they're not final. So there's states, they, uh, the states that have had these laws in place, they feel the, the people in charge in those states feel pretty strongly about it. And they're not giving up, are they? No, not in the least. And I will tell you that on both sides, passions obviously are running exceptionally high. Mm-hmm. But 22 states have banned this procedure, these medical interventions for minor kids, because we know 80 to 90 percent of children, if they're allowed to go through normal pubertal development, they'll eventually get past whatever awkwardness they have in their biological sex. And so these states have wisely said Let's make sure that we aren't allowing chemical castration and voluntary mastectomies for minor kids. Let's let them get through hormonal development and natural puberty first. The Sixth Circuit and the Eleventh Circuit have said the states are right. These laws are constitutional. The Eighth Circuit has disagreed and, in fact, came to the opposite conclusion, saying, well, a parent has a right to get whatever care they want for their minor child, but the Supreme Court has never held any such thing. We're talking to Sarah Parshall Perry. She's a senior legal fellow for Legal and Judicial Studies. You can find her piece on this at DailySignal.com. So um, the makeup of the court now, is it, uh, is it even uh, is there even a chance that the states who have lost in a lower federal court are going to win in the Supreme Court? I have to tell you that we've got a makeup at the Supreme Court that is a very strong supporter of states' rights, of federalism. Mm -hmm. And we've just seen this play out in the Dobbs versus Jackson Women's Health decision. They want these social issues not to be usurped by a judicial authority. This is for elected government, right? We debate these in the state houses and the legislature. We elect representatives and we elect speakers who represent those perspectives, this is where those policy discussions need to take place. I think if these challenges get to the Supreme Court, the Supreme Court is very likely to say this is entirely appropriate as an exercise of state power and the laws are constitutional. So so they, what they're doing is throwing it back to the people in those states and saying, listen, if you don't like these laws, elect people who also don't like them. Otherwise, you know, That's move, it. right? That's exactly it. And we've seen it so far with abortion, John. As you know, it's a bit of a patchwork. Some states restrict abortion. Some states have passed heartbeat laws or they've passed pain-capable laws. 
So it's a little bit all over the board, but the nature of representative democracy is, by its very virtue, a bit messy. You have the capability of moving and going to a state in which you believe your interests will be better represented. The Supreme Court and the Constitution won't prevent that. But in the meantime, they don't want to jump in as a super legislature and tell the Tell these state houses and state legislators that they know better what the outcome should be. Now, and you mentioned uh, one of the things about 80 or 90 percent of the kids who feel this way. If they're left alone, they'll they'll get over it. Um, and, you know, everybody's heard by now most of the arguments for and against. And most common sense would seem to be on the side of um, not doing this to kids. But when it gets to the Supreme Court... Those arguments, those arguments don't matter, I guess, right? That eighty or nine—they don't want to hear that eighty or ninety percent of the kids uh, change their mind or get through it, and, and they're okay with it because that's irrelevant, right? If they're just if they're just arguing privacy rights, that's exactly it. They're also arguing essentially state power and mm-hmm. whether or not that Fourteenth Amendment right to parent one's child includes a medical right. Now. It's very possible that if we see this issue go to the Supreme Court, we'll see a lot of amicus parties who will submit their friend of the court briefs, and they'll make large discussion, I believe, of some of the scientific aspects of this. The fact that the science is not studied, that England, Finland, Norway, Sweden have all backed off gender-affirming care, that multiple medical malpractice suits have been filed across the country, that there's the rise of what are known as detransitioners, those individuals who is teenagers go through it and then suddenly and horrifically regret it. Those are likely to be arguments we see probably in the amicus brief, the friend of the court brief. But as concerns the singular constitutional question, if the Supreme Court is faced with these laws, they are likely only to address whether this is a 14th Amendment and 10th Amendment right exercised appropriately. So the right to privacy is a major point of contention in these cases. But then who has the right, the girls who don't want a boy in their bathroom or locker room or the transgender boy who thinks he's a, a female but, and doesn't like using male bathrooms and locker rooms? How, who gets well, to decide that? Question. That's a great question. That was just the good um, federal district court opinion we saw out of the District of Idaho in which a judge said, Judge Nye said, exactly what you said, which is, listen, we've got to balance the equities here. The the law separates in the state of Idaho bathrooms by biological girl and boy because the state wants to protect the interests of privacy and safety for biological girls. And as a side note, it doesn't violate Title IX of the Education Amendments, which guarantees sex equality in education. Why? Because it actually anticipates biologically separate sports and bathrooms. So we just saw a great opinion in which the judge made exactly that calculus and said there are accommodations in a lot of these laws for transgender students who want to use a particular bathroom, but we can't take the 99 and bend their privacy interests to the dictates of the one. We're talking to Sarah Partial Perry. She's a senior legal fellow uh, for legal and judicial studies at the Heritage Foundation. Sarah, as someone who uh, spends your days looking at this stuff, um, can you think of another issue that has 
taken over the courts and just taken over society to the degree that this transgender issue has when it affects 0.04% of the population? You know, that's really a good question. I will say we have Neil Gorsuch to thank for this in 2020 in his Bostock versus Clayton County decision. Remember, that was the employment discrimination case in which the court determined that discriminating on the basis of sex also meant discrimination on the basis of sexual orientation or gender identity. Now, that was a very limited holding, but it hasn't prevented the Biden administration on the first day after his swearing in from issuing an executive order saying all federal agencies will interpret sex to include gender identity. Well, there are more than 100 federal laws and regulations incorporating prohibitions on sex discrimination. Bostock made a mess of the legal landscape. Alito knew he would. And unfortunately, what we're seeing now is this trickle-down effect, which in the span of essentially two and a half years has wreaked incredible havoc on the American legal system. And it doesn't help, and you wrote about this too, um, it doesn't help the uh, chances of returning to sanity when a man like Dylan Mulvaney wins a Woman of the Year award. And women are responsible for that. That's exactly it. I cannot for the life of me, speaking as a biological woman with a biological daughter who plays on a sports team and has been up for female-only awards, I cannot fathom women who seem to be keen on being complicit in their own destruction. We've only, as women, had the vote for 100 years, and we've only had educational equity for 50 years. So as long as I have breath and a daughter, I will say (laughs) that I will continue to stand up for the places, protections, privacy, and safety of women. And we have a little bit over a minute left. I'm just, if you can uh, uh, just make a prediction here. As um, as informed as it can possibly be at this point, um, what do you expect to happen here now that you know you've written about these recent court cases that have ruled in favor of people who are actually you know sane? What's what are the chances of this just becoming returning to sanity at some point? Well, I will say that individuals who are keen on promoting gender identitarianism are losing for the most part in federal court. But that means, short of a victory for them at the Supreme Court, which I think is highly unlikely, we're going to see the rhetoric pick up. It's going to get incredibly inflammatory. We're going to see arguments that gender identity is an immutable characteristic. When it's not, it is only subjective state of mind. And we're going to have to stay strong as individuals to recognize biological reality and what immutable law means. Hey, Sarah, I think we lost you there. Are you still there? I'm here. Okay, yeah, I just, you were clipped off at the end of your sentence. Um, uh, I, I, I'm out of time, but I always love having you on because you are all over this issue, and uh, I can't think of anybody else I'd rather have to talk about it and try to clear it up for everybody. I appreciate it. Thanks so much for having me. Okay, that's Sarah Partial Perry, and we'll be right back. Well, we talk about uh, transgender insanity a lot around here on this uh, radio program, um, and I don't think we talk about it enough. 
Uh, I, I know there are people out there who may think we talk about it too much, but I don't think it can be talked about too much. And so um, I, I like having someone like Sarah Partial Perry on, but I came across this, and I think I have time to go through it. This is from someone on Twitter named Mia, and, I, and I, it says, Cry Mia River is her handle on Twitter, Cry Mia River, M-I-A River. And she's talking about the Ontario Human Rights Commission, and it states that a poisoned environment is a form of discrimination. Now, this is the best example, the best explanation of transgender stupidity I've ever read. An example given is a man who claims to possess invisible female essence being forced to use the men's room at work. This can lead to a hostile and oppressive atmosphere, quote-unquote. That's according to the Ontario Rights Commission. She writes... But the truth is, gender identity ideology is the poison, a very potent one, and just one drop is enough to destroy entire families, workplaces, schools, and institutions. When parents who are true believers in gender souls transition their young child, it becomes the job of the child's whole school to validate the lie. Every child in the school must be detached from reality, forced to live in a fictional world where humans can change sex like clownfish. The poisonous ideology then inevitably claims more young victims. When a teen tumbles down a gender gender rabbit hole online and emerges believing that all her pubertal woes are a sign she is transgender, her family is supposed to accept that her whole childhood was a lie. They are forbidden from using her name. They're supposed to celebrate the medical demolition of her healthy body. Failure to do so makes them abusive parents. When an employer hires one of those curious beings who claim to be sexless, Everyone in the workplace has to walk on eggshells, taking pains to mangle the English language so as not to offend the perpetually offended. When a man decides to move on from just masturbating wearing women's clothes to wearing them all the time, everyone in his workplace has to deny the evidence of their own eyes and pretend he has magically transformed into a woman. Women must quell their unease and gladly welcome him into their spaces. When an institution like the YWCA becomes poisoned by gender identity ideology, it finds itself prioritizing sex offenders' rights over the comfort and safety of rape survivors. Fortunately, there is a very effective antidote to this particular poison, and it's called the truth. When everyone stops going along with a lie out of kindness and a misguided sense of compassion, the poison will lose its strength and we can start to edge back towards sanity. I've never heard a better summation of the stupidity and the insanity than that one right there. You can find her at underscore cry M-I-A river. And uh, I don't know what else she does, but that's the, I'm seriously, that's the best thing I've ever seen. The best summation of the stupidity and the insanity ever. And by the way, tomorrow I have a guy on who's uh, been doing a video on the insanity and stupidity of homelessness in Pittsburgh, and he's having trouble getting the media giving him attention for it, even though there was a fire in a homeless encampment yesterday. That'll be tomorrow. Talk to you then. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. 
The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.